my name is Hannah Barbeau, and I'm one of the interns here for the summer. I will be reading the scripture today, which will be from the book of Philemon. You can join me in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1818. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a fellow brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in the answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks, Hannah. That was great. I joked last service that it was kind of like hearing the very heart of Paul mediated through the personality of Jane Austen. Um, we're only spending one day on the book of Philemon, these tiny books with big, humongous truths in them. This book is essentially about restoration. And restoration is essentially the entire thing God is doing in the gospel. And it is one of the hardest kinds of work in the world. There's only, there's hardly anything so hard as restoring human relationships. And it's hard enough just to try to get restoration in your relationships that have gone sideways. Um, it is even harder to actually intercede into the broken relationships of other people and actually have a restoring effect. But... That is actually what this book is about. It's about the fact that Jesus is the great intercessor and greater restorer, and that his, his work as an interceder of intercession brokers complete restoration for human beings if we'll believe in him and trust him. And, and the, the second thing is, is that that is exactly the work he gives us to do. It is the daily work of the Christian. 
In the book of Hebrews, there's this place where the author is trying to clarify for the Christian readers what it means that God is completely sufficient for them, that God can totally save them, that they don't have to have fear that if they've come to him, he will help keep them to the end, and that they can have joy in that, and they can trust God. And he doesn't actually say at this point, the reason why God can save you completely is because Jesus died for and therefore atoned for you. This is what he says. He says, he, that's Jesus, is able to save completely or ultimately those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See what he's saying? He's saying Jesus' death and resurrection is the atoning basis on which we can be justified or set right with God through faith. But that's not the only thing that's involved in our salvation. Like little lambs, we have to be kept by a shepherd to the end. We need somebody constantly getting involved in our lives, constantly advocating for us, constantly interceding for us. And Jesus, risen and reunited with God the Father in heaven, always lives to intercede for us, those who have come to God through Christ. Because the work of Jesus— from beginning to end, from incarnation to final restoration, is interceding work. It is about being ultimately and finally restored. And that's actually the work he's left for us, that we would be his little restorers and little interceders every day in every context that we're in. This morning I want to go through two sets of three. One is, what does that look like? What does it mean to be an interceder and a restorer? And the second is, is the three contexts in which we have to see ourselves as interceders seeking to restore in Jesus' name. So one is, there's, there's three things that anybody who's trying to do the work of, of an interceder, we're trying to broker things. We're trying to get things done. We're trying to negotiate between two parties that are not right with each other. And the first thing that we have to do is actually just, we have to broker forgiveness as a peacemaker. We have to, we have to get the two parties talking. We have, to, we have to draw them together, like, and just get them at all interested in actually interacting. And ultimately, the, that interaction is meant to lead to the offering and receiving of forgiveness. When Paul goes through what he says here, he demonstrates something that's, that you don't see right on, on the, the face of it that is really specific to this context. A, a lot of people have looked at the, the book of um, Philemon as Onesimus just sort of like runs away and ultimately somehow bumps into Paul, and then Paul ultimately sends him back to Philemon. But that's really not what probably happens because it's really clear that this is during one of Paul's Roman imprisonments. Now listen, when you're at the bottom of a hole of a Roman jail, nobody just bumps into you. Okay? That should be self-apparent. One of the things that people often don't know is there was actually a rule during Roman times, because at, uh, between a third and a half of the, of the population of the entire Roman world were slaves. And so there were a, a lot of laws related to slaves, including terrible ones, like if you were the head of a household, you could beat and kill a slave, and that was just, that's just life. But one of the laws that they had was you were allowed as a slave to run away in order to depart to a close friend of your, the, the master of the house you were part of, to ask that friend of your master in order to intercede for you if you had fallen into a really bad place with your master. And Colossae wasn't a super big town. Philemon was apparently kind of a big deal. And like a lot of people who are big deals in small towns, a lot of times there's not a lot of people who can tell them what for. You know what I mean? And so when Onesimus—I mean, Onesimus is clearly not the noble guy in this story. Like, we tend to have a absolute narrative in our minds about slave, slaves and masters, that the slave must be the morally noble person, and the master must be the morally ignoble person, because that's just how we think in our American context at this time period. But in terms of sheer nobility, what, what, what we read between the lines of the book of Philemon is Onesimus is not a noble dude. His name, Onesimus, means um, helpful. 
And so there's this kind of funny pun where he says, before Onesimus was not helpful <laughs> for you, and now in Christ he's become the kind of person who's both helpful to me and to you. Meaning, before—now, Onesimus has come to Jesus. Before he came to Jesus, he was a different kind of person, and he was a pretty worthless kind of person. Now, everybody is worth something with the image of God, but there are some people out of nobility and hard work and different kinds of virtues are really worthwhile people, and Onesimus apparently was not one of these people. In fact, it is insinuated later when he says, if, if you've lost anything because of him, it's it kind of insinuated that he may have stolen from Philemon when he left. And so this is not—Onesimus is not portrayed to us before his conversion like he was a really great guy. And it may be that their relationship kind of spiraled. We don't really know how they got on bad terms, but they got on bad terms. And Onesimus, there's a certain point where we all want to believe we can advocate for ourselves, but there's a certain point in which you get over your head in debt, morally, socially, monetarily, and you cannot advocate for you. You're not going to get anywhere advocating for yourself. Unless somebody above the fray and above the person who's got you by the throat steps in, you're dead. And Onesimus had finally gotten to that. He'd, like, he'd broken the last straw, and somehow he hears that Paul is in a Roman prison, and he knows his location, and people in prison tend to stay in that location. And so Paul's either in Ephesus and route to Rome, or he's all the way in Rome, and Onesimus runs away and travels all the way to Paul to find him because he knows that Paul is the only guy who has some kind of authority with his master Philemon. One that he doesn't totally understand, not being a Christian himself, but that he understands is there. And so he takes himself up on this Roman law, and he goes to find an interceder because he can't save himself. And when he gets to Paul, Paul is shrewd enough to know that him interceding with Philemon is not actually the most important forgiveness and peacemaking that Onesimus requires. Any Christian that has their gospel head screwed on straight knows that the first reconciliation, the first peacemaking that every human person needs is to be set right with God. And that you can't really do much interceding and making peace among sinful humans that are not submitted to King Jesus— until some of these, at least one of these people, gets straight being reconciled with King Jesus. And so the first thing that Paul does is he leads Onesimus to Jesus, which is why he can say, Onesimus became my son while I was in prison. That is, Onesimus came to him, and while they were interacting, Paul as prisoner, Onesimus as slave, ironically is where Onesimus finds his real freedom and ultimately his true self. And he comes to Jesus, and in coming to Jesus, he becomes Paul's spiritual son. And he also becomes Philemon's spiritual brother. What, what you can see in the work of Jesus, in the work then of Paul and Philemon, and then the daily work for us, is that there's at least three parts to trying to be peacemakers and to broker peace. One is, is that you just have to foster communication. You'd have to just get somebody talking to God or talking to the person that they need to find peace with. You just have to find some means by which to get the interacting going again. Two is that you have to try to set, help them set some kind of terms of agreement because they probably somehow tried to do this before and it just went sideways. So you have to kind of help them decide on what terms maybe they could have forgiveness and peace. And then the third thing is, is that you have to call them and persuade them to make the right decision <clears throat> about what to do without coercing them. There's, the, for, in verse 14, he says this, But I did not want to do anything without your consent, that is, keep Onesimus for himself, Paul is saying, so, I, so that any favor you would do would be spontaneous and not forced. Paul was not open to the idea that Philemon could take his legal right and kill Onesimus and do the right thing. He didn't think not killing Onesimus was a favor. But what he, was, what he was saying was, whether you just receive it back on good terms as a slave, or whether you recognize he is dearer, and as a man and as a brother, he should be your brother in Christ and not your slave. Whichever of those you do, you have to choose to do it. And the reason why that's so important is because it is morally necessary for the redemption of the person choosing. 
You just can't force somebody to forgive. And somebody who has to forgive has to forgive. Unforgiveness is basically the only unforgivable sin in Christianity. I mean, Jesus straight up said, If you will not forgive others, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. And so it is necessary to lead somebody to the act of forgiveness, but you cannot make them forgive. They have to do the forgiving. And yet you have to do everything short of coercion for their good in order to get them there. I mean, Paul lays it on pretty thick, doesn't he? I'm sending an essence back to you, who is my very, my very heart. Who's my son, whom I love, and I wish that you could be here doing what I needed, which is your responsibility, of course, but you can't be, so he's here, and I'm sending you back my very life. Right? It's not manipulative because it's all true. And he wants Philemon to see it, and he's doing everything he can to lead him to it, but he realizes you can't coerce somebody into reconciliation. You can coerce somebody into a ceasefire. You can never coerce somebody into reconciliation. You can't browbeat into love. The second thing that's part of brokering full restoration is actually brokering perspective like a counselor. Now, that may not have been on your list, but it's one of the things that Paul does very clearly in this, where he's— and here's, here's why this is important. Because all of us believe that we're good people. Every single one of us. We all believe we're good people. And so all of us have created narratives in our mind in which we emerge as good people. We're not necessarily perfect, but we do end up being the hero. We may be a troubled hero, but we're the hero. And so in the story in our minds related to the person that we are not reconciled to, there is a story in our mind, a perspective that we have laid down, which is the proper interpretation according to us. We may have even shouted it at the showerhead in our self-justifying anger and deciding what we would say to that person if we finally had them right in front of us and they would shut up long enough for us to tell them the truth. Or at the rearview mirror, right? Or it, it may be that we've just rehearsed it in our heads. But everybody has a, a perspective, a narrative about what caused the split in which we are a justified person. And you see, the negotiator who's negotiating forgiveness and reconciliation has th that, that interpretation, that mental self-justification, it, it has to be let go of. And the thing is, is that they believe it's the truth, that it's a fact. Because their very sense of self is resting upon that foundation. Because if that interpretation goes, you might be a bad person. You might be wrong. Your whole inner sense of self goes into a discombobulation. And stress enters in, and like you just feel bad, and you're just frustrated, and you want things to get resolved in your mind again as soon as possible. And so you will jump to another interpretation that makes you look good, that's entirely different, but uses some of the facts, and that you find emotionally helpful. And see, what Paul does is he comes in, and he just offers Philemon another way of looking at things. So you can imagine Philemon, you know, sitting in his villa, steaming about Onesimus running off with his you know, his really nice toga to sell, and just be that worthless SOB. Like, I, I, I brought—he could have been bought by anybody at the trader, at the slave trading market. Or, like, I could have killed him in battle, but instead we, we accepted his surrender. He became a bod servant in my household. I'm a pretty good master. You look around this town, right? This is, like, this is what happens in the human mind. He's been nothing but worthless, and he stole from me, and he ran from me, and— he, he should receive the judgment of God, right? Good Christian <laughs> assessment, right? And so Paul writes back to him and he says, I'm I want to send this guy in essence back to you. He's my son. I've become his father, and now he's your brother. Here's a new perspective, Philemon. Here's a new perspective you didn't have before. And because I'm his father in the faith and I'm your father in the faith— not only do you have to accept him as your brother, but whatever you do to him, you do to me as your father, as your shared father. It's kind of, you can almost hear, like, the grandma. Like, you, you know, the two cousins are fighting. They're like, you guys are fighting, and that's going to cause a heart attack. I just can't see my babies, my diabetes, and I'm stressed, right? And, like, you know, you got to get back together again, right? You can, it's that kind of, like, 
Like, if you care about me, you know I, how I feel about him. You can't, right? It's a, it's a different perspective, right? But one of the other perspectives that he gives is, he says, what if we did this thought experiment? If you believe in God, that God is bringing about redemption, and you believe that God is doing it through his providence, that means what you also believe is that through really bad stuff, he reveals, God reveals and illuminates our sin, and where we're going, and the dead ends in our life, and he uses those to lead us to where we hear the gospel. And through doing that, he redeems us and saves us. And so oftentimes stuff that you could be very rightly angry about and very frustrated and not want to forgive, God used those to bring about a good end like redemption. So he says, well, perhaps, think about this, Philemon, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a brother. Think about it this way, Philemon. Maybe it was God's will that a slave ran off and instead what you would get back was a transmuted human who would become closer than a blood brother. Think about how much you've gained. And think about how this may have been God's will. That Anesimus would hit rock bottom, that your broken relationship would send him out to the only person he thought could help him, but he sent them to Paul, who told him about the only person who really could help him, which was Jesus, and then he met Jesus, and then that totally changed him, so that Anesimus was ready to come back and really have a relationship with Philemon, and they were prepared so that they could be brothers with each other, and then Paul was ready to broker that as the spiritual father of Philemon also. It may have been that some wheat-buying trip that Philemon went on to Ephesus where he might have met Paul for the first time wasn't about buying wheat in the first place. Because Paul had never been to Colossae, but Philemon and Paul had met. If you believe in the providence of God, and you believe that God is working restoration— then you believe in God's providence in bringing about whatever good ends can be salvaged from any spring of preceding events, no matter how painful they have been to you. And by letting go of your self-justifying mental narrative in which you're a good person and replacing it with the narrative that justifies God and his providence working for his ends and his redemption in which you are caught in the flow of it. If you will see and embrace that, you will be able to see God for who he is. You'll be able to see God as glorious for who he is. You'll be able to see his true purpose of redemption. And you will be able, in the midst of all the carnage of human sin that we are culpable for, in the midst of all that, you will be able to see what God is doing. And when you see that bigger story, it becomes much more, much easier emotionally and personally to forgive what has to be forgiven. You have to look at a counselor. And, and think about this. This is just what Jesus did. He came and he taught, right? And what did he say? Well, to people who were self-justifying, he confronted them, Right? Oh, you guys think that tower fell on those 13 people because they were especially wicked? <laughs> You're going to the same hell as them. That's what he said in Capernaum, right? And then in another place where there were prostitutes and religious people and people who just like were like all bound up about whether or not God would accept them, he said, now imagine a good father who has two sons. And one of them is just like an idiot, runs off, wastes everything. And then he realizes it, and he repents of it, and he comes home. What do you think the father does? Here's the father. He runs out, right? And he tells that whole story. Why? Because he wants to confront the narrative of good people, bad people, who God accepts, who he won't accept. And that it's only the condition of faith and repentance by which God will receive anyone. And that if you, if the narrative in your head is that you have to self-punish yourself all the way to hell, you don't have to do that. You're not going to get yourself anywhere self-punishing feeling bad and like trying to punish yourself emotionally, that is the only internal emotion that punishes you in conscience that is good is the conviction that leads you to repent and turn to God for forgiveness and turn to your brother and sister for restitution and reconciliation. That's the only kind the Bible says is good. The rest the Bible says is unto death.
Third thing is brokering restitution as a donor. If, if in most cases, when relationships have been split, it's because there's a real offense. And if forgiveness is going to happen, something has to be done with the cost of that real offense. There is no free forgiveness. There's, there's no such thing as that. When forgiveness happens, somebody pays the tab. Let's say, let's say uh, somebody comes over to my house, they're new to the church, they bring some kids, you know, their kids are coming over, and, and one of their kids thinks it would be really interesting to light a big firecracker and put it in my furnace and just see what happens, right? And he just blows up my furnace, right? And we're like having a little conversation with T upstairs, and all of a sudden you hear this like explosion, right? We run downstairs, and you look at this thing, and you can't believe your kid did that, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, right? What happens in that moment? Besides, you get a fire extinguisher in that whole bit, right? There's three options. One is, I get everything out of you I can, our relationship is broken, and somebody bleeds. That's option number one. Option number two is, you say, oh, that's all. Listen, I will pay for everything. I am so sorry. I will pay for everything. We will restore this. I'm so sorry. I say, oh, so, thank you so much because it is December and it is Wisconsin, right? And so you pay for forgiveness so that we can have a relationship. Or you say, listen, I, I'm out of work and I haven't paid my rent in two months and all my credit cards are maxed out. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I say, just, it's fine. Just don't worry about it. I'll pay for it. It's fine. The third option is, I pay for it. There is no free forgiveness. Either the perpetrator pays, or the person who's harmed writes it off and therefore pays, or the offending party extracts it from the offender. Those are the only three options that are real. And so, in Christ, God, in the person of his Son, self-pays for the forgiveness of humanity, but does it in a way that takes an oblivious humanity and seeks to make them sensible of the debt they really owed. Because the problem with us is not so much the debt. God can pay the debt. The problem with us is our obliviousness that we just blew up the basement of reality with sin. And we have to be made sensible of that. And so God's, God's threats, God's prophetic words, God's statement of law that we constantly break, God's clarity of the penalty of that law, his giving of the, the person of his son to clarify these things and then to die openly, horrifically in front of us to demonstrate God's payment in the person of his son for the debt we owe such that reconciliation could take place. God is brokering restitution to himself so that there can be forgiveness and peacemaking between God and human beings so that when God, human beings are set right with him and with themselves, there's a chance for them to be set right with one another and then all of creation and all the systems those humans create. Right? Paul says it this way, and this is just another way of talking about substitutionary atonement. Somebody stepping into your place paying your debt, right? He says, so if you consider me, that's me, a partner, welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will pay it back. So he's saying that you can actually use this as a legal contract. I didn't write this through a scribe, so I've written this in my own hand. This is my handwriting, so it functions like a signature. You literally could take me to a Roman court, and you could extract whatever Onesimus owes you from me. Literally. I will pay it. So you have no monetary debt you can claim against him. Because I will pay all of it. If such a debt exists, I will pay all of it. So you cannot attribute it to him. Because you're, you're repaid for it. You've been made whole. And then he says this, which is just wonderful. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. It's, isn't it nice that he didn't mention that? It's evidence that Paul was definitely Jewish, right? So, like, he, what he's saying is, is that he brokered. He didn't pay for Philemon's salvation, but he brokered it. So there was an infinite well of forgiveness 
of restitution in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Philemon, as a sinner, owed all. And Paul interceded and brokered Philemon's receiving for his great debt the forgiveness purchased by Christ so that Philemon could be saved. And so though Paul didn't pay for Philemon's sins, he brokered the paying of Philemon's debt through Christ, through faith, and so therefore saved his life. And so therefore he could say, yeah, so Philemon, if he owes you 50 bucks, just remember that I saved you from an eternal hell all the moral debt that possibly stands between you and God so that you could have perfect and righteous standing and be indwelt by the Spirit of God and led into a completely new life. Everything that you've received in Christ, you have because I brokered it and because Christ made restitution. Now, think about that when you think about what Onesimus stole and the work hours he didn't work while he was gone. Right? And then he says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ and do this. Right? Now, those are the three things. <clears throat> Brokering as a peacemaker for forgiveness. As a counselor offering a new way to look at things so we can let go of our self-justification. And third, that we could actually point that person to where restitution can be made so that forgiveness can happen. Now, there's three places where this is our daily work if we're believers in Jesus, and the first is simply in restoring people to God through Christ. It's just individual restoration. Um, everybody needs to be restored to God through Jesus, and that's our job, to do that. Paul said, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains, meaning Onesimus became a Christian. He accepted Jesus and so became his son. And this is the reason why Paul is subtly arguing here that he was kind of worthless before and he's been changed. Which is then going to be the basis on which he can return as a brother. And the personal transformation is not beside the point. Everybody needs to be reconciled with God just to be saved and to set right, be set right with God and to be properly set right with themselves. But in addition to that, they need to be transformed into the kind of person that wants redemption, that wants their relationships to work out, that wants to fulfill their responsibilities and they're part of a relationship so that they're not constantly offending in the relationship. And whenever something goes wrong, they want to make it right. And they see reconciliation is what God is doing. And so whenever something's falling apart, they want to be a reconciler rather than somebody who heats it all up. And so when Onesimus gets set right with God, he's reconciled to God, the first reconciliation, but he's made able, he's made the sort of person who could be sent back into other unreconciled relationships and be the kind of actor in those that seeks reconciliation. And so the one thing Paul says he wants to make sure Philemon is doing, he's like, Philemon, I know you do all kinds of really awesome stuff. You refresh the hearts of the saints. But he says this, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you can be reconciling other people to God, and so that he says, and so, this is really kind of a fun one, though, so you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ, which is really a cool thing, right? As you share your faith, you understand what you're teaching, and as you tell other people what they could have in Christ, you understand better what you could have in Christ. <laughs> the funny part is, is that Paul is saying, like, that when, if they come to faith, they'll be your brother in Christ. And then guess who walks through the door? <laughs> And he goes, oh, right. And that realization comes from him sharing his faith. By sharing his faith, explaining to others what they can have in Christ, it reaffirms in us and helps us deeper understand what we have in Christ so that when we turn and look at our brother and we want to treat them like something other than our brother in Christ, we have been confirming in our explanation to others what that means. So we catch ourselves when we start to lie to ourselves about what it means that that person's our brother or sister. Does that make sense? The second is <clears throat> that um, we become restorers of people to each other. First and foremost, inside the church. Also, outside the church. Being a reconciling interceder is the, uh, is the virtue of which gossip is the vice. 
Gossip is entering in out of self-importance and flaring up the divisions between people. Interceding for reconciliation is out of self-sacrifice entering into a situation in which you could be attacked in order to bring together two people that are being driven apart. You see, when you enter into gossip, you are getting yourself on the safe team. That's the whole point of gossip. Yeah, yeah, we are all on the same team together. We're all talking about so-and-so or these other people, the bad people. But we are all the good people talking about the bad people. So you're, you, the reason we gossip is to be accepted, to be affirmed, to interest and titillate our flesh, to feel important, and to feel safe within the warm embrace, embrace of, un, of absolute ungodliness and the destruction of the image of God in others. The opposite of that is realizing that you're going to enter into a situation in which you may be misunderstood, you might be attacked, you're leaving behind the gathering of safety and rings of safety around yourself from playing the game that tribe is built on to entering into two people that may not want to come together and to try to bring understanding. And if they don't want understanding, they're going to attack you and attack your motives for trying to bring it about. And you are going to suffer for it. That's how that works. But sometimes you bring people together. Sometimes you can get in there and you can help broker forgiveness and you can help give them another way to look at it and you can broker the restitution and the the response they need to give each other. You can point them, if they're Christians, to Christ and what he's already done and what he's called them to and that they should have already been making peace without your help. And sometimes they'll come together and it'll be amazing. The third is restoring the human fabric, that is bringing reconciliation into the dynamics between people by making the dynamics of injustice impossible. Um, in, uh, in the early, late 1950s, before, um, before the Montgomery bus boycotts, um, Roy Wilkins and Martin Luther King Jr. were friends. But they were seeking um, desegregation in very different ways. The NAACP was, was essentially at that time a legal organization, and they were fighting in courts, especially federal courts, <coughs> to win cases against segregation. So for them, what they wanted was a placid black public, right? That's what they needed so that they could win court cases. Martin Luther King had a very different vision. His vision was what was necessary was um, brotherhood and reconciliation between black and white people, and what was necessary was public demonstration that would prick the supposedly Christian conscience of white America. See, he, he, he knew that white people, especially in the South, went to church, and they believed in Jesus, and they said that they loved God, and they said that therefore they believed in love and equality and friendship and all that kind of stuff. And he said, what we need to do is we need to, we need to show the, the, how these two things go against each other, the hypocrisy, that, and the only way we can do that is through public nonviolent demonstration to create brotherhood, to create repentance, right? And so he'd been doing this, and he had been entirely unsuccessful up until that point. And so apparently there was this conversation which Wilkins said to, to King this before the victory in Montgomery. He said, he said, Martin, if you have desegregated anything, would you please enlighten me? Trying to explain to him that his tactics were wrong, right? And apparently his response was, he said, you know, you're right. The only thing I've really succeeded in desegregating so far is a number of human hearts. Now, it turns out that he would ultimately succeed in desegregating with the help of many people, lots of things. But at that point, he was just making clear again that that wasn't his ultimate, ultimate goal. Even desegregation itself was a means to an end for MLK. The end for him was what he called the beloved community. That was the end. Brotherhood. Real brotherhood and sisterhood. Desegregation had to happen so that we could all sit around the table together as brothers and sisters. And one of the things that 
it's easy to pass over in this passage, but I think is really important, is how Paul refers to Philemon as a man. Look at this verse for a second. He says, you might have him back for good. That is, he's talking about providence, so that you, Philemon, might have Onesimus back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, what's interesting about that verse is that Philemon was already a man. When he went to go seek out Paul, he became a Christian. And in becoming a Christian, he became a brother in the Lord. But he was already a man. That didn't change at all. He was a man when he was a slave first. He was a man as he ran away. He was a man when he talked to Paul. He was a man as he became a Christian. He's a man as he returns, and he's going to be a man after he returns. So why does he say that? That you would receive him as a man and as a brother in the Lord. There are some things, there's some realizations morally that we don't really emotionally and personally realize until we actually realize the next thing. So when I was growing up, when I was, when I was young on public buses, public school buses, stuff like that, I had a couple relatively unhelpful experiences with much larger, older African-American kids. And so I would consider myself a class four prejudiced kid when I went to college. I wasn't really prejudiced. I knew I wasn't supposed to be, but I just had negative experiences, and I didn't live—I grew up in northern New York. I was, a, I was around about as many black kids as, like, a kid in Baraboo, right? And so I got to a college that was, like, 64 percent black because it was a public school in New York, and there are tons of students coming from New York City. And I went to the first college fellowship meeting, and at a school of 10,000 people, how many kids would be in the Christian fellowship, right? Like, a bunch. There were three and two of them were Haitian immigrants, one of them who had gotten saved at Brooklyn Tabernacle two years previous, Vladimir Joseph, Shirley Lewis, right? And so I hadn't met Alexia yet, and there was this other white girl, super white girl, Kelly Dixon, and so it was Nick Gibson, Kelly Dixon, and Vladimir, and Shirley, and it was the weirdest thing. I mean, hugging for uncomfortably long, and we'd, we'd have prayer meeting, and so Kelly and I and Vladimir would go to prayer meeting, and he was from Brooklyn Tabernacle, so you don't even start praying for prayer requests until you've praised God and thanked God for like 90 minutes. So we would we'd go into one of these like fluorescently lit like college rooms with little tables and he would insist that the three of us hold hands the whole time And then he would just start praying and he'd pray for like literally it was literally 45 minutes of like god We thank you for I mean he would he would thank god for the effectiveness of his fabric softener. I mean it was it was detailed detailed praise and they were, they'd, and we'd call each other brother and sister, and people would joke, and, and like, I had, my mom bought me these two, like, sweatsuits, okay? So this is back in the 90s. And um, one of them was gray. It was all gray. It looked really dorky in retrospect. And one of them was blue, right? And they were a little long on me, and Vladimir was 6'2", and so he just took one one day. Just took one. I mean, he's, ba- he's, he's basically parentally an orphan, and he's, you know, he's at school, and he doesn't have a lot of stuff, and he liked my sweatsuit, and I had two, right? And he, he took it, and he, I was like, what, what are you doing? He's like, you're my brother, Acts 2. The believers had everything in common. <laughs> and I was like, I'm thinking, like, I don't even wear that. Yeah, whatever, go ahead and take it. He literally wore it for three years. <laughs> Off and on. We'd go play basketball. He'd show up in those blue sweatpants and be like, I'm ready to roll, buddy. Right? And, and this, was, and this was how the relationship went. And, and then Alexi came along, and we grew very close with Shirley. We were the only two people in the white gospel choir, and we would tour with them, and it was really odd. And, um, and Shirley had a child, and she was trying to finish her student teaching at the time, and there was no dad in the picture. And so um, she asked Alexi and I if we wanted to be the godparents. We were in the delivery room. That was fun. Um, saw her daughter born. I held a leg for like two hours. Uh, and, and then she had to do her student teaching, which means she has to be in school for eight or nine hours a day. She didn't have money for daycare. And so we created a sign-up list at the Christian Fellowship. All white kids, like in undergrad. If you can imagine this, like I, I think a social worker would step in at this point if they knew this was happening. <laughs> but what happened was all these like, there were like 25 kids in the Christian Fellowship by that point, And they all signed up for these like two-hour blocks between classes. And we would literally take this girl and we would take her little thing and her diapers and we would hand her off. And she would go to this next dorm and like this is how Shirley got through her student teaching. And by the end of four years— of brother and sister. 
by that point, I was understanding man and woman. Sometimes you just have to press past something to ever get that thing. We talk about believing other people are men and women, but we really believe they're animals and devils. And it's really not until, and this is why, see, we want to believe that there is some, some secular panacea here where we can all, like, respect each other's rights. And, and philosophically and legally, that totally should be able to work if we were dealing with robots. But we're not. We're dealing with barbarian humans who don't empathize with other people and don't care at all when other people they don't know die that are outside the circles of their tribe, and that this is the human heart. And it really isn't until you get a new father and a new group of people are made your brothers and sisters, and you have to deal with the fact that they're your brothers and sisters, and they're different and weird, and they're older and younger, and you grapple with them being your sister, your brother, more real than your literal blood brothers and sisters, such that you reconcile with them, and you don't just leave and go to another church or pitch the faith because you got angry at somebody— that you will actually see them as a man full of the dignity of God bearing his image and a woman full of the dignity of God bearing his image. And Paul is insinuating to Philemon, who is a Christian and a good man, that it may very well be that it is not until he receives Philemon back as a dear brother that he will ever really see him for the first time as a man, as a human person. And so it is necessary for us. This is why, you guys, this is why I believe working hard to be a church that is both genders as evenly as possible, intergenerational as fully as possible, and multicultural and international as fully as possible is worth the work and necessary. Because Christian growth on its, the deepest level of love flows best from an absolute commitment to the fatherhood of God, the older brotherness of Jesus, binding together a new family in absolute union as brothers and sisters, us being spiritual mothers and fathers to each other, and learning to get along with family in a group of people who are as literally as different as possible, that in practice produces a maximization of the experience of becoming loving, which is the pinnacle of being like Jesus. When that love flows out of faith in Jesus and hope in the resurrection, the resurrection and what it points to, the restoration that he will ultimately bring. In the sister epistle to Philemon, just listen to this last thing and we'll be done. Um, in fact, Ben, if you want to come, you can. The, the letter of Philemon probably came with the letter to Colossians, because it was the same town. And in the book of Colossians, Paul says, I rejoice in what, I, what was suffered for you, meaning what I suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh, meaning my physical body, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That's what he says. It's a very strange verse. This sounds like heresy. What could possibly be lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And you see, Paul is not talking about Christ's atonement. He's not saying that Jesus didn't die for enough sins. He didn't die hard enough to pay for the sins of humanity. That's not what he means. What he means is, is that part of Christ's suffering was not atoning, but was part of the work of interceding. People misunderstood him, and they told lies about him, and they attacked him. And ultimately, it was misunderstanding his interceding work that was the means by which he was killed and became our atonement. So his death was simultaneously, in God's providence, the atoning salvation for all of humanity, and also a demonstration of the suffering that can come to those who truly give themselves to following Jesus in intercession. You cannot follow Jesus in atoning. You can and must follow Jesus in interceding. And the cross points both to the salvation of his atonement to bring us together 
and also the pain and the way of the cross that can come from being like him and interceder. And Paul says, I'm to the place now where I rejoice to fill up in my body the suffering that Christ couldn't suffer because he couldn't be in every place, every place, every time. He had to choose all of us together to send out into all places of the world to be his interceders and to suffer like him as an interceder so that other people could benefit from his atoning suffering in his death and resurrection. Friends, Jesus brings ultimate restoration through his intercession, his death, and that he lives always to be a priest interceding for you in all the trials and all the laments and all the pain of your life. But in that way of suffering, the way of interceding for restoration among all people, we are called not to just benefit from Jesus, but to follow him. To unite people with God and salvation and sharing our faith and uniting people with themselves and who they're really meant to be by coming to Jesus and receiving forgiveness and being transformed in sanctification and becoming the kind of person that can then be restored in the relationships of their own life all around them, and to then live as brothers and sisters together so that everything that they do, everything they seem to believe, everything they seem to think, fundamentally undermines the divisions and the injustices and the things that seem to creep and grow in all the institutions and cycles of men. And that path is a path of incredible hope and it is a path of suffering, and it is one that we can succeed on walking together as we walk in it as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers to each other. What greater dignity can you bear in addition to the image of God than to be like Jesus in the work of cosmic intercession? for redemption and restoration. And is your life not a drop to be spent for something God loves so much and the world needs so badly? Let's pray.